Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Episode 340 of The Bowery Boys. The Real Life Adventures of Tom Thumb. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hello and welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Tom Myers. Greg Young is wrapping up his vacation and he will be back next week. So today I'll be joined by a number of authors and professors and a a museum director who are all experts in the subject of today's show. A man who was one of the most famous people in the world from the 1840s until his death in 1883, Charles Stratton, who was known by millions around the world as General Tom Thumb. Charles was born in Bridgeport, Connecticut on January 4th, 1838 to parents of average height. And he grew normally during the first six months of his life to about 25 inches or so, so about two feet. And then surprisingly, he just stopped growing. And when P.T. Barnum, the master showman, would meet Charles and his parents when Charlie was just four years old, He had only grown about another inch. He was four years old, and he was still about two feet tall. Now, we've talked about Tom Thumb in a couple of shows over the years, um, including episode 225 on the life of P.T. Barnum. And back in the spring, we did a show about Barnum's phenomenally successful tour with Jenny Lind, the, quote, Swedish nightingale. But it wasn't Jenny Lind that made Barnum a household name in America. Because eight years before she went on tour in 1850, and decades before P.T. Barnum would become famous for his circuses, little Charlie Stratton, who Barnum would rename Tom Thumb, made Barnum and Charlie both worldwide celebrities and very rich men. It's kind of strange how topics for our shows pop up. Um, Last week, I was walking up Broadway toward Union Square uh, when I noticed that Grace Church at 10th Street and Broadway had reopened. It's been such a relief, you know, to spot these reopenings, these promises of a return to, well, at some point, some kind of normalcy. So naturally, I headed right inside. 
this gorgeous church designed by James Renwick in the French Gothic revival style was completed in 1847, having uh, moved up from a building down on Rector Street. As many New Yorkers, including many of this church's well-to-do congregation, were also moving uptown and moving away from the busyness of the docks and the commerce downtown. So I headed in and down the center aisle um, to a pew, I sat down and took in the splendid interior, arches upon arches, the stained glass windows and chandeliers. 1847, it opened. That was nine years after Charles Stratton was born and 16 years before he'd be married right here. On February 10th, 1863, he'd be married to Lavinia Warren, another small person, in what was easily the most celebrated wedding of the year. The next day's New York Times devoted four full columns to the coverage under the headline, The Loving Lilliputians. It was one of the biggest events of the season, the, the marriage of General Tom Thumb and Lavinia Warren. And it was taking place during one of the darkest and bloodiest moments of the Civil War. The New York Times coverage began, quote, Those who did and those who did not attend the wedding of General Thomas Thumb and Queen Lavinia Warren composed the population of this great metropolis yesterday. And thenceforth, religious and civil parties sink into comparative insignificance before this one arbitrating query of fate. Did you or did you not see Tom Thumb married? It almost sounds like a fairy tale or like an elaborate Barnum hoax. Was this for real? Was this article being facetious and just incredibly condescending? Or were they serious? And even if General Tom Thumb really was that famous, was Tom Thumb being exploited? And if so, then what do we make of any of this today? Who was this guy? But of course, to understand Tom, or Charles, we have to reacquaint ourselves with P.T. Barnum, who would hire Charles Stratton, after all, when he was only four, in order to exhibit him at his American Museum, which was located in Lower Manhattan, right across from St. Paul's Chapel on Broadway at Ann Street. Now, up until that point in the early 1850s, Barnum was mostly known for a handful of humbugs, including having presented Joyce Heth on stage, a frail old African-American woman who he shamelessly claimed to be 161 years old and to have been George Washington's former nursemaid. To discuss Barnum, I called up Robert Wilson, the author of the 2019 biography, Barnum, An American Life. So Barnum's story begins on July 5th, 1810. He's born in Bethel, Connecticut. What was his childhood like? Well, he grew up in a, a small town and I mean, one of the stories of the 19th century, I think, is of people living sort of out in the hinterlands, looking at the big city longingly and finding a way to get there. And and that was certainly part of Barnum's story, that he wanted more than what 
he, you know, grew up with. Mm-hmm. And um, his family was fairly prominent in the town in that they had a lot of businesses going. It was a very entrepreneurial place. So Barnum, from an early age, got involved in various business schemes and and even published his own newspaper at the ripe old age of 21. Which, um, by the way, would land him in jail briefly. Yeah, exactly. But, but his pre-American museum period is really interesting um, because he, he seems to be trying to figure out who he is. He's trying out a lot of different schemes back in Connecticut. But then when he gets to New York, he's also putting, you know, Joyce Heth on display. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about him is that he had an instinct that he would be good at sort of putting people on display. So he he had his eye out for an act like Joyce Heth. And as you say, it was not the uh, the most noble thing he did in his life by far. But but it, it was interesting that he, this idea of himself as a showman came from somewhere and began to build in him. And so when he's just, what, 30 or 31, he's able to, to buy Scudder's Museum uh, just across Broadway from St. Paul's Chapel, which he'd rename Barnum's American Museum. What was it like when he took over? You know, Barnum's Museum was this, place where all this stuff was going on. There were, you know, he had flags waving and lights shining, and he even hired a um, a band with the worst musicians he could find to play on a, a balcony over overlooking the street. Wait, did you say the so worst the, musicians he could find? The worst, so that uh, the band was so bad it would drive people into his museum, <laughs> <laughs> was the idea. Um, or at least this is the way Barnum tells it. What would it have been like in these early years, the pre-Tom Thumb era, uh, to visit Barnum's American Museum? Well, initially it was a it was a, a sort of typical kind of natural history museum, which it had been before Barnum's time in various guises for a long while. Um, it had had you know displays of minerals and things like that. But Barnum had this idea of kind of filling it with everything that could be known about the world, basically. So he began bringing in displays of live animals or, you know, dead animals. Um, but notable dead animals. <laughs> notable dead animals, yeah. And uh, and sometimes fantastical dead animals. <laughs> uh, and he, he eventually began to get people throughout the world to look for things for him, for oddities, for things from other cultures. And eventually he would have, he claimed, a million objects in his museum. But he also became very interested in having performing acts. So this this building, the American Museum, is about five or six stories tall. And there are these long hallways exhibiting these different these different items and curiosities and hallways that have live performers in them as well. But then on the inside, he also would build a theater, a, a, but he yes. wouldn't call it a theater. Right. He called it a lecture room because one of his goals from early on was to create sort of wholesome entertainment. And the theater was a place that did not have a good reputation. I mean, Actors and actresses were thought to be people of low morals, and the theaters themselves were places where 
prostitution would go on and there was a lot of drunkenness. And so he he really wanted to create a, a kind of entertainment that people could bring their, the, the rising middle class could bring their children to and, and the men could bring their wives to. So the idea of a theater had a taint to it. So he called it a lecture hall, but but there were generally theatrical performances that went on there. So in 1842, Barnum discovers Charles Stratton up in Connecticut. Yeah. How did that come up? How did he find out about Charles? You know, Barnum, um, Barnum had incredible skills, but he also had incredible luck. And mm. probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to him in his life was that his stepbrother lived in a what was then a, a small town of Bridgeport, Connecticut. And his stepbrother came to hear about a perfectly formed dwarf in that town. He was two feet tall. He was four years old. And he was just symmetrical and, and very, uh, looked like a really a miniaturized person. And so Barnum happened to be going through town and asked to meet him. So the boy's mother brought him to the hotel that Barnum's half-brother owned, and they met, and Barnum immediately offered him a contract and conjured up a story for how he would um, promote him. And he came up pretty much on the spot with the idea of calling him Tom Thumb, which is a character from old English folk tales. And, and there had been some examples of named Tom Thumb that had exhibited in New York. And, hmm. But um, not for him. But not for him. And Charlie Stratton turned out to be even smaller than the ones who had been exhibited and, and just, you know, a hundred times more talented. He uh, Barnum took him to New York and began to sort of prep him to be somebody who could he could put on display. And, and the boy had just an incredible natural wit and um, a natural capacity for memorizing things and, and a, a, a theatrical flair that, you know, I said in my book that however good a teacher Barnum might have been, he could never have taught this. It was just... Innate. Um, it was in him. Yeah, it was innate. And so Charles signed with Barnum in 1842 and under the tutelage of Barnum himself, started learning a routine to present to the public. And the public, I should add, would be told that he was 11 years old. After all, would it be more impressive for Barnum to present a two-foot-tall five-year-old or a two-foot-tall 11-year-old? He'd also get a new title, General. And he'd get a wardrobe to match. Many of those pieces can still be seen today in the collection of the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I spoke with Kathy Marr, the museum's executive director. What do you think really drew Barnum to Charles Stratton? Yeah, so actually, unlike the movie, a lot of people think of Tom Thumb as in relationship to, to the, the recent Greatest Showman movie, where he was an adult. He certainly was mm -hmm. not. He was foreclosing in on five years old, um, and he was extremely tiny. He was almost infant size at that time, barely two feet tall, very, very petite, but he had all the faculties of 
a five-year-old. So it was rather captivating to Barnum. I don't think that this wasn't a fascination for Barnum as well, and that that's where Barnum's brilliance is. He understands, he uses himself to kind of gauge the temperature of what an audience or society might see, and seeing this miraculous child, you know, this, this almost like an adult in miniature, mm-hmm. he was enthralled. Now, Charlie is, you know, along the lines of the, you know, age of um, Barnum's daughter, you know, is... Mm-hmm got daughters, young daughters himself at that time. So Barnum is also a father figure, and he's seeing, you know, this this baby as, as part of a family. He's not so abstracted from the situation. So in order to create the contract, he does, you know, bring in both mom and dad of Charlie Stratton to make sure that he's taken care of, that there's a salary, that the parents come with them. Down to New York. As chaperones. Mm-hmm. Sets them up in an apartment at the American Museum because at that point it's taking off. You know, the American Museum has many performers who are living on property. There was boarding for a lot of the performers, and Charles and his parents were actually set up in in an apartment with other performers. And in passing him off as an eleven-year-old, I mean that's a big that's a big leap, right? Um, I mean, a five-year-old doesn't necessarily doesn't look like a look like an 11 year old so would he dress him up to look older do you and i guess do you have any photos oh well we have we have photos we have his clothing (laughs) we have an extremely large collection of um tom thumb materials and we have a number of jackets uh trousers from the 1840s period, and they're they're perfectly proportionate adult-type clothing of that moment in time in miniature. But what was it actually like to see Tom Thumb in action? In those early days, in 1842 and 1843, when he was only about five years old, for that, I turned to Eric Lehman, an associate professor of English at the University of Bridgeport, and the author of the 2013 book, Becoming Tom Thumb. Would he have been on stage or would he have been in one of these sort of exhibition halls? Yeah, so right at the very beginning, for the first couple months, he's in one of these dioramas. There, you know, you're, you go down the hall and it's just like you go to the Museum of Natural History today and there's oh, yeah. sort of dioramas, uh, except there's people in them <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes animals or whatever. And probably no glass over them. No, no glass. And so he's he'd be hanging out there. Um, and that was right at the very beginning. And and that was the sort of standard for other people. So Miss um, Swan, who was this, uh, quote, giantess, that was her purview for many years. She would just sit there and she'd like knit or whatever. And then people would come by and they'd, they'd be like, holy mackerel, she's huge. <laughs> and they'd, they'd talk to her and she she was very good at talking to them. And, and so she never went onto the stage as much as she just was in one of those dioramas. But um, Charles sort of graduated from that pretty quickly and they put him on the stage. So, so we might go into the American museum. We might walk around these dioramas. We'll see some strange animals. uh, We'll see some uh, artifacts, whatever, some of them real, some of them fake. And then we'll go into this theater at, you know, uh, I think he did, like three shows a day or something for quite a while. And he, you know, this person would come out on stage. uh, Sometimes it was Barnum, but Barnum would have these other people do it then. 
uh, the straight man. And he'd come out and he'd be like, we're going to talk to Tom Thumb, General Tom Thumb. He's, you know, and they, and then he would come out. And one of the reasons he became so famous and one of the reasons this whole thing worked was that, first of all, people expected a fake from Barnum. Right. They thought it was going to be a humbug. Yeah. And he wasn't a humbug. <laughs> it was real. He was really small. And not only was he small, he was funny and he was he could sing. And I mean, every time people actually saw him and, I, you know, this is over 40 years, only at the very end of his life was anybody like, well, that wasn't such a good a performance. Almost everybody came out of these performances feeling different because of their expectations, I think. And so they expected him to be a humbug or they expected to go in pitying him. Mm hmm. Right. You know, gen you know, uh, I'm an, oh, this poor kid. Mm -hmm. He's being exploited. He's, he's being exploited. And they would come out feeling great. And they would be like, oh, my God, that was fantastic. And I wasn't expecting that. In Eric's book, he writes about a typical Tom Thumb performance of the period. Quote, on the stage, Charles began with easy skits and tricks. Barnum's first idea did not require Charles to act a great deal. The Grecian statues performance involved Charles posing as great heroes and figures from history, the contrast of size and appearance being the primary spectacle. His small body held taut and posed with club upraised in the attitude of Cain about to kill Abel, or with spear ready to fly as Romulus drew attention to the fact that he was not a weak, helpless child, but a, quote, man in miniature, as advertised. Tom Thumb was a hit in New York. Now it was time to take him on tour throughout Europe. And in London, Barnum would hope to exhibit Tom at a rented hall, the Egyptian Hall. But first, he needed some publicity. Barnum was a master of figuring out, and you guys mentioned this in your Jenny Lynn show, he was a master of figuring out what the public wanted and how they, how it worked. And so the public in England worked a lot differently than in America. And so he at first tried what he did in America and it didn't work because there were literally dozens of, you know, little people exhibiting themselves and having performances all throughout England. And so he said, well, we got to, we got to do this a different way. And so they went to London and he said, well, the Brits, they love the royalty. So we're going to get the royalty and the aristocracy involved. And so he invited all these people over to this townhouse that he rented. And, you know, everyone was all dressed up and and he had basically private dinner parties with the aristocrats in which Tom Thumb performed in these, you know, and he had them do all these tricks on the table and things like that. Um, and, and people were like, this is fantastic. This, this guy is great. And word got to the queen, queen invites him in and, uh, and it's a, it's a huge success. Um, and then the queen invites him back. And then at that point it's in all the papers and then he's in this, you know, hall, Egyptian hall. And that's when they start making lots of money because people are lined up around the block to see him. They go around France then, and they go around England, and, you know, he takes a lot of joy in teaching this kid 
all these tricks and all these, mm. you know, he's watching him learn and grow and become a really great performer. Um, yeah. it's, it was, it's kind of touching. Yeah. And in London, one of the ways that Barnum decided to drum up publicity was to build Tom a special miniature carriage. One of these carriages is today in the Barnum Museum's collection in Bridgeport. I asked Kathy Marr about it. Yeah, and they did that they did that in multiple places. So we know of three um, carriages. There's one in Deerfield, there is one in London. We have one of the carriages that Tom was actually, you know, promoted around town because when you saw a very, very tiny perfectly resembled carriage in town pulled by ponies and actually children as the footmen because they couldn't use you know full people um you knew that tom thumb was coming i mean it it was in he must have stopped traffic yeah and think about what the traffic was it was a lot of foot traffic it was horses it was big carriages so when you saw the little thing coming around People would go crowding. I'm almost suffocating him. Um, Barnum didn't want anybody to see him, so they kind of wrapped him up, had his mother carry him as if he was a baby. To protect him. To absolutely to protect him and not to reveal the fascination. Charles Stratton, Barnum, and the whole entourage, including Charles's parents, would tour Europe for three years during which time Barnum was also writing articles for a newspaper back in New York, just, you know, ensuring that the hometown audience could follow along. Charles, as Tom Thumb, was becoming an international sensation. Here's Eric Lehman. This cements him in the European imagination. Um, you know, he meets the Tsar of Russia on <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, you know, meets all the heads of state, you know, King of France. Um, right. Fantastic. So that makes everybody else want to see him. And, you know, he goes on, I don't remember how many tours of Europe over the next 30 years, but it was, some, you know, at least four mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. tours of Europe. And he just made money hand over foot. And of course, despite the Americans sort of like, oh, we don't like the royalty and we don't like Europe. It's the old country, you know. Um, the fact that he was a big star over there made him, again, even a bigger star over here. Yeah, so when he returns then to New York and he's working yeah. again back in the American Museum, it seems like that would have been such a draw. I mean, not just to see him and to see his act, but even to be able to interact with somebody who had performed and sort of visited these heads of state. You know, it's like a connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he would use that he in his act. He would tell the stories. Um, he became kind of like a storytelling stand-up comic uh, in, for a number of years there um, in the 50s. And later on in life, he would do that as well. Eric writes that Barnum would estimate that 5 million people would see Tom Thumb during his three-year tour of Europe. 5 million people. He returned to the U.S. not only famous, but he could also perform in French. And he'd learned to play the piano. And he also now counted several of Europe's kings and queens as friends. He was nine years old. But what did this incredible success mean for his relationship with Barnum 
and especially after Barnum would unexpectedly lose everything in the 1850s. It turned out that Barnum had invested widely in real estate and in other businesses, including a clock company that would go under, and it would take Barnum, a principal investor, down with it. I asked Bob Wilson, the Barnum biographer, was Stratton still working for Barnum at this point? I think Stratton had gone off, and Barnum was very smart about if he had an exhibit that you know was in in New York for a long time, and the crowd started to dwindle, he would put them on the road. And mm. so Tom was out on the road when this happened, and um, he actually wrote to Mrs. Barnum and said you know, look, if there's anything I can do to help you, um, I'll come back from the road and I'll put on exhibits to make money to help you guys get out of debt. And uh, a lot of people came to or offered to come to Barnum's assistance when he did go bankrupt. But um, at least Barnum's story is that he really wanted to come back on his own and, and he eventually did that. But Tom was behave very well towards Barnum when he when he did go bankrupt. Barnum was bankrupt. He'd lost his prized home, a mansion that he'd named Iranistan, and he'd lost his business, although he had transferred ownership of the American Museum to his wife, Charity. And they moved from his Bridgeport mansion to a rented apartment on 8th Street near 6th Avenue, and they struggled to pay rent. And in this moment, Charles, 18 years old, offered to help. Here's Eric. Well, he immediately sends him a letter and tells him that he'll help him out in any way he can, and basically by performing with him. What would happen is, uh, and Mark Twain did this later, when you know someone would go bankrupt, they would flee the creditors. Um, <laughs> before the internet, you could do this, right? Um, you know, so <laughs> Barnum basically flees his creditors, goes to England with Charles Stratton. Charles Stratton's performing, Barnum's, you know, being his manager again. And then while he's bankrupt, Barnum writes The Art of Money Getting. (laughs) 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 And then goes on a lecture tour to support this book in England and is great. And so he, he makes back all the money that he needs to pay off these creditors and get out from under the debt caused by the Jerome Clock Company. Disaster. And and, yeah. and that's with Stratton's help. So he's Stratton's only yeah. he's not even twenty years old really. And he right. goes back to this man who has helped make his career who has made his career and helps him climb out of bankruptcy. Yeah. We don't know if he directly gave him any money, but it was much too much money. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars, which at the you know, in today's money would be, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And so, you know. Charles couldn't just directly bail him out, but he he said, well, we can make a lot of money together, so let's go do that. And so they did, yeah. While Barnum was regaining his financial health, tragedy struck the Stratton family. Charles's father, Edward, who had always had a rather strained relationship with Barnum, had been struggling with alcoholism for years. And in 1855, he was committed to the Hartford Lunatic Asylum, where he died on December 29, 1855. And two years later, perhaps with a new 
appreciation for the fragility of life, Charles, only 19 years old, commissioned a statue to be made of himself, something that he hoped would someday stand atop his own burial site. Charles was now a young man. I asked Bob Wilson, at what point does Lavinia Warren come into the picture? She seems to come in um, in late in 1862. And, and Barnum had discovered earlier in 1862, he'd been told about another little person who he named Commodore Nutt. And he had become, a, by this time, Tom had become older. He'd gotten a little bit taller and uh, had become quite stout mm-hmm. uh, off his riches. And um, so Commodore Nutt was a sort of new new version of Tom Thumb, and, and, and he was a success too. And so Barnum was on the lookout for other little people, and he heard of this woman um, from Massachusetts sometime in the fall of 1862 named Lavinia Warren, who was, uh, by the standards of the day, quite attractive also about Tom's size. And um, Barnum manages to sign her up and always puts out, whenever he signs anybody up, he puts out a story about how hard it was and how much money he had to spend. And, you know, only Barnum could afford to have brought this person to you and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he, um, he begins to display her in early 1863. And of course, this is in the heart of really one of the worst, bloodiest times of the Civil War. You know, Antietam had been in the early fall of 1862, and then Fredericksburg was this great slaughter of Union troops, and the country was in a bit of a funk. Anyway, Barnum starts to display Lavinia, and he buys her, he outfits her in these great dresses, and he, but he soon comes up with the idea that she and Tom should be married. And although in his autobiography he goes to great lengths to say that it was a love match and that Tom had seen her much earlier than he probably did, it does seem like Tom had been on the lookout for a wife. And when he saw Lavinia, he thought she was a you know sort of plausible mate. So whether it was arranged marriage or not, they indeed got married very quickly after they first met. Wow. As I say, Barnum has this long courtship that lasts a number of months. But in fact, I think, you know, Barnum had this idea that it would be a great publicity stunt to put them together, and and they were both, at the very least, amenable to it. Barnum, in planning the wedding, he first thought that St. Paul's Chapel across Broadway would be a convenient spot. Yeah, but it wasn't available. Well, at first it was available. The priest said, fine. But then the, um, I mean, somebody higher up in the church uh, hierarchy felt it's just going to be a um, publicity stunt and it was not suitable to St. Paul's. Mm -hmm. And so he looks up Broadway, up to 10th Street, and Grace Church, which was relatively new at that point. Yeah, and, and... he managed to get a preacher from um, Bridgeport involved, and and somehow the the rector there was was willing to do it, and and so that's where it ended up happening. 
So we've got Charles and Lavinia and a wedding that Barnum has planned for February 10th, 1863. We'll get to the true story of Tom Thumb and Lavinia Warren right after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. The date for the wedding was set for February 10th, 1863, at Grace Church at 10th Street and Broadway. Eric Lehman writes in his book, Becoming Tom Thumb, quote, The 21- and 25-year-old took a suite at the huge brownstone Metropolitan Hotel in the days leading up to the wedding, receiving visitors. Talk of their upcoming nuptials became the one absorbing topic by high and low. The events surrounding the marriage ceremony actually knocked news of the Civil War off the front page of the New York Times for three days. They defended the choice, saying, quote, The marriage of General Tom Thumb cannot be treated as an affair of no moment. In some respects, it is most momentous. Next to Louis Napoleon, there is no one person better known by reputation to high and low, rich and poor, than he. The extensive coverage of the wedding itself in the, in the next day's New York Times includes every detail about the crowds outside and inside the church, how they waited with great anticipation until finally the wedding party emerged at the top of the aisle. The Times reported, 
Preceding them was the self-possessed, the self-poised, the shrewd-eyed, kindly-faced Barnum, the prince of showmen, the manager of the affair. After the general and the queen, Charles and Lavinia, followed by Commodore Nutt, the groomsman, and Miss Minnie Warren, the bridesmaid. An instantaneous uprising ensued. All looked, few saw. Many stood upon their seats. By many, good breeding was forgotten. By very many, the sanctity of the occasion and the sacredness of the ceremonies were entirely ignored. As the little party toddled up the aisle, a sense of the ludicrous seemed to hit many a bump of fun and an irrepressible and unpleasantly audible giggle ran through the church. (laughs) After a moment's reflection, the most absolute silence was maintained, and the bride and groom, supported by the bridesmaid and groomsmen, stood upon an elevated platform facing the altar where stood the officiating ministers. I, I asked Eric the question that I just couldn't seem to shake. Had Barnum really set this whole thing up? Oh, yeah. So there's a big difference between setting up the <laughs> wedding and setting up the marriage, right? Barnum definitely set up the wedding itself. And he, he made it uh, this huge spectacle. And it was, you know, the event of the year. I mean, this is during the Civil War. So there's a lot of important things going on. And it takes over the front page of these, all the papers, you know, for three days. days. Yeah. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. And so, you know, people are, you know, all the gossip columns, all they can talk about is, you know, her dress and her. And so it was, it was something like one of the Royal weddings in England, you know, but in New York, you know, it's hard to imagine today a celebrity wedding that would be this big and, and that would draw this much attention because we have so many celebrities. But because it was different back then, because there were fewer celebrities and because he was so famous at this point, you know, he was almost legendary at this point. When they get married, he's been in the public eye for 20 years already. He was actually, um, and as I discovered, he was kind of on the decline in, as a, in popularity because there were other people at the museum and mm-hmm. other, you know, we had Commodore Nutt now mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but after this, then this becomes this huge event and catapults him and Lavinia Warren uh, and then her sister and Commodore Nutt and into this sort of superstardom that never goes away then. I mean, part of me wonders, and, and I've, I looked it up. I mean, I read like the, the Times account from the next day's paper and they mentioned people laughing at first as the the couple arrived and then and then saying that it became an otherwise solemn affair yeah was there an element of ridicule to this did people think it was a ridiculous event were people there for some sort of perceived hilarity of it was it funny or was this also something solemn well that's a complicated question so i think there was an element of you know when you usually go to a tom thumb show it's a comedy show basically and he's he's you know playing in a comic play or he's so people are you know like let's say we go to like you know uh will ferrell's wedding or something you know Mm -hmm. jerry seinfeld's wedding or something like that we would 
suspect for some reason that there'd be something funny going on there. Mm -hmm. And so you have that kind of reaction. You also probably have the same kind of reaction that people who don't know him yet will probably have that reaction or other reactions like going in and thinking this was a big joke and then being genuinely moved by the wedding itself. So there, you know, much like in his shows, you know, people would go thinking this was going to be funny but stupid and come out of it with this like whole new <laughs> appreciation for human diversity and be like what this is crazy like what you know it was unexpectedly uh, and, profound yeah yeah i admitted to kathy that the audience's reaction confused me it's a, it, it is very confusing for um, for modern sensibilities. Uh, you know, really thinking about a wedding like this. It's, and and the reality is, most people think, oh, it was just a show. It was a hoax. It most certainly wasn't. The couple were very much in love. They were in love, and they wanted a respectable wedding. Barnum actually paid for the wedding. That was a gift to the couple. They had the whole ceremony planned and prepared. It was not a free for all. And it wasn't a show like people think it was. There were invitations. There were not tickets. That's important to know. And, and you couldn't buy an invitation. You could not buy an invitation. The invitations went to, unlike the American Museum, where everybody was welcome. This was a celebrity wedding. This was a rock star wedding. This is, You could equate this to, you know, the wedding of um, Diana Spencer and, and Charles. People were invited. There were celebrities there. There were elite there. It was New York society. And that's who attended the wedding. What they did to satisfy the enormous curiosity, uh, Lavinia's wedding dress was on display. Mm. You know, uptown. Well, as uptown as it was back then. Um, ah, so so people could see the her wedding dress before the wedding. Yes. And Matthew Brady... The, the wedding party and the couple, they went to Brady's studio. They had all the photographs done. So as soon as the wedding was over, they started selling the cabinet cards. Mm. And people, I mean, thousands of them. You know what we have in the collection, Tom? We have a piece of the wedding cake. What? In the collection. Like uh, the actual we cake? We have a piece the actual cake. Um, How, it was a chocolate it, cake, I can tell you that. <laughs> how's it doing? How's it doing 160 years later? It survived the tornado. Um, oh, the tornado that hit your museum. The tornado, yes, uh, thank you. Yeah, the tornado that hit the museum in 2010. It was out because it was going to be put on display. Wow, even a tornado couldn't destroy it. Yeah, could tornado <laughs> could destroy it. <laughs> but they had a, um, with the thousands of people that were at the, uh, the wedding, the reception, they actually had a large number of tiny little square almost rectangular pieces of cake cut to really sell as souvenirs after all of the festivities of the wedding wow hold on can we pull back for a moment even if the crowded church had turned solemn even if even if the couple was in love um even if charles stratton was celebrated around the world what are we to make of this story isn't it still all just happening because of the novelty of his short stature, their short stature? Isn't that why they're famous? Is that why people packed into this church 
in order to see them get married, to witness one of the most solemn moments in their lives so that they, the spectators, could go and tell others that they had been there? How are we even supposed to feel about this today? Or does it even matter how we feel about it today? To help answer this bundle of questions, I called up Michael Chemers, a professor of dramatic literature and director of graduate studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the author of the 2008 book, Staging Stigma, a critical examination of the American freak show. It's a book that that features the Matthew Brady photograph of Tom and Lavinia's wedding party on its cover. I asked him just about how unusual Charles's success was. It was unusual for anyone to have that kind of success, to have that kind of of uh, notoriety or fame, really, is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a, a very vibrant time in the theater in American history, but no theater artist, even Edwin Forrest or Junius uh, Booth, you know, mm-hmm. did not achieve the levels of fame and success that Charles Stratton achieved. He was known all over the world. He was the Michael Jordan of his day. He went to Thailand and they knew him. He had huge crowds. They named a street after him in Paris. Really? A street after him in Paris? Yeah. 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 Rue Tom Pousse. Ah, Tom Pousse. Yeah. And a cafe. People loved him, you know? And the truth is, you know, anytime you look at an actor, and my impulse is to look at Tom Thumb as an actor, to, mm-hmm. you know, to, any actor, their body is part of their overall, what we call performativity, right? Their style, their glamour, their good looks or physical prowess, their athleticism, whatever it is, things in their body that make them uniquely uh, attractive, right? Mm -hmm. And those things are not always what you would expect. Sometimes a slight variation in what we would think of as the normal human is considered extremely attractive. Right. Mm -hmm. And in his particular case, in Charles Stratton's particular case, he was he had an undeniable magnetism that was just a part of his performativity. Yes, it's true that he was short um, and that his shortness was part of what attracted people to him. But it wasn't just that, because there were plenty of little people in show business at that time. And there were plenty of little people who were not in show business at that time. Mm -hmm. And this is another illusion that I think people they they think, oh, well, he had to perform because there was nothing else for a little person to do at that time. Yeah. And that's not true at all. I mean, you know, little people held positions in society at all levels. And it really was, it's a foolish thing to say that he had to perform. And, and Lavinia, in fact, um, had yeah. been a school teacher. She had been a school teacher. And throughout her life, she's also a very interesting character. Um, uh, Arthur Saxon wrote a wonderful biography of her. She went around uh, giving lectures and uh, levies and uh, salons, you know, mm-hmm. where she would where she would just talk wittily with with people, hmm. and and people couldn't believe it because there was a prejudice at the time that if you had a small brain, you were therefore not very intelligent, and this was a a racist pseudoscience called phrenology, right, which said that that people who have smaller skulls are, are less intelligent and this was a way of of legitimizing racism in america and and europe and tom thumb would kind of shatter that right he absolutely shattered that because he was a brilliant actor and he he had uh he used to perform multiple times a day right. in different shows he would do very complicated performances 
and uh, and then he would also do these uh, interlocutions with the audience where he would he would riff on something that they said and he was brilliant and she was brilliant too but it's it's interesting I wonder if you've come across this in your research and writing um, you know when I mentioned that I'm doing a show on Tom Thumb you know I have been met with some people who express I don't know well-intentioned pity perhaps mm -hmm. um, or they're yeah. they're concerned that you know he was exploited and that it's really a sad story um, yeah. somehow and and it seems like the more I find out about this guy the less likely that seems it it uh, he was not exploited he he became fabulously wealthy and he continued to perform a lot longer than he had to I mean he could have retired wealthy but he continued to perform and he actually he he had a very rich full life he was a 32nd degree mason he was an entrepreneur he owned various businesses so was he exploited uh i mean there's a certain degree in which you can say that all actors are exploited did he have no agency in what was done to him and for him no that's wrong he had a tremendous amount of agency he was barnum loved him very much they were very close and he was paid I think, if I remember my research correctly, he was paid half of what, whatever they took. Um, and then he would eventually be a free agent. I mean, he was off right, on his and own. He, and he worked on his own. So yeah. if he had been exploited, cer certainly he... Well, there's no evidence to suggest that he was unhappy and that he certainly could have stopped performing when he became rich. But he didn't. He kept doing it with his wife. And she did report in her... In the biography, in Saxon's biography, she reports that he was a little bit sad about his childhood because he felt like he didn't ever really have a, mm -hmm. a carefree life as a child, a boy life is what she said. He never really had any boy life. But that is, um, that's something that happens to all child stars. So, you know, yeah. if, if I think it's a mistake to try to move into that realm of pity and without really understanding what his life meant to him and to the people around him, you know. Um, it certainly is the case that a lot of freak show instances were not as pleasant as this. And there were instances of people being coerced and being exploited in terrible ways. But the Tom Thumb story just doesn't bear that out. The evidence doesn't bear that out. The wedding was over, and the reception at the Metropolitan Hotel, with its 2,000 guests, had finished. Gifts had been collected from all strata of society, including from First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. But the great wedding tour was just kicking off. In fact, they'd first head down to Washington to be received by President Lincoln. I asked Bob Wilson, how in the world did Barnum set that up? Well, as you say, Mrs. Lincoln had sent a gift, and Barnum had some interplay with Lincoln before that. He had taken Commodore Nutt to the White House and met Lincoln and his cabinet. But I think it was Mrs. Lincoln who really was the force behind wanting to have a reception for them in the White House. And, you know, once again, that could well have been just a, her scheme to sort of cheer the president up and to cheer the people around him up. But yeah, they, they went to the White House. They wore their wedding clothes. They put their wedding clothes back on. She wore her dress, which had already become famous. And, but they got re, redressed and went to this reception and right. met Lincoln. And a journalist said that Lincoln took Lavinia's hand 
so delicately. It was as if it had been a robin's egg. Wow. I think it's a really sweet notion. And then they were off. The four-person wedding party, Tom, Lavinia, Commodore Nutt, and Lavinia's sister Minnie, along with her entourage, on a wedding tour throughout the United States, Canada, and then off to England to see Queen Victoria again, and to France. They would return to the U.S., spending years touring and making a fortune. And in 1869, Tom Thumb... Charles Stratton, now operating his own touring company, took the advice of his friend Barnum to take a round-the-world tour, sailing from California, which they'd reach by taking the newly opened Transcontinental Railroad from New York. Here's Eric. Yeah, so it's the day that the Golden Spike is driven in. Barnum suggests to their manager, who's a different guy at this point, Sylvester Bleeker, and says, oh, this is... uh, what a great idea it would be if they took the train out to San Francisco and then you just kept going and you went all the way around the world. <laughs> I just found this fascinating. And I could not find any other examples of uh, around the world performance tour like this before them. So, so the, the suggestion being that Tom Thumb and Lavinia and, and Commodore Nutt and Minnie yeah. were the first celebrities to do a around the world tour. Exactly. Um, I, I think that's remarkable. You know, certainly they, they go to Australia, which at that time you couldn't get to Australia from the east. You know, they have to go all the way to, you know, Ceylon, uh, Sri Lanka, and then like go back that way around down to Australia because of the barrier reef and all that. Yeah. So that it's really quite a an undertaking that they go on this three-year tour around the world. I, 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 yeah. I mean, I almost thought it was made up. You're like, come on, this can't have happened. They can't have gone and met the emperor of Japan. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you know, just like a a year after Japan opens up to Westerners, right? Right. And then you find, oh, it's it's all true (laughs) in the newspapers, you know, in New Zealand and stuff. You know, you're like, oh, gosh. (laughs) And they're getting covered in all the places that they go and they're selling out all these different exhibition spaces and theaters. Um, Following the tour... So back in the United States then, um, throughout the 1870s and 80s, Charles and Lavinia would continue to go on tour a number of times. Yes, almost every year. But they, they, they did leave Bridgeport. They relocated back up to Minnie's hometown of Middleborough. That's right. He built a house there with fittings that were sized to them. So, for example, I've been in the house, the, the stairs are like half sized. Oh wow. And the railing the railing is sort of for the staircase is like halfway between what would have been good for them and what was good for you know like I could barely reach it down to it. Um but I could because of course they had, you know they had guests. Visitors and, yeah. and they had servants in fact who who, you know, they had a cook and they had, you know, other servants who would help them out. So they had other people who were going to be in the house. So they made this sort of compromise sizes all over the house it's very interesting but the house itself was of normal height the the rooms yes. were of standard size yes the house is of standard size yes and, you know he they had to get out of the bridgeport because it was too easily accessible by train and 
he had celebrity stalkers <laughs> and just people showing up at his house all the time. And just looking um, through the windows. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was, if anything, worse than today. Um, today, you know, of course you have celebrity stalkers, but most of us are not going to, you know, go and like knock on, you know, our favorite celebrity's door um, uh, because we we understand that that's uh, not cool light or something and not cool to do. So um, it was worse back then. Um, they constantly were bugging him. So Charles Stratton died on July 15th, 1883. Um, what what was the cause of his death? Unclear. Um, it could have been the fact that he was he had smoked cigars every day since he was four. You know? oh. <laughs> it could have had something to do with it. Um, he certainly his body was not adjusting to, you know he, he gained a lot of weight in later years the, the stories of him eating as a child you know he's just, he's eating like a normal you know 10 year old but he's you know a third of the size of a normal 10 year old and so he would eat and eat and he never had a problem until he in his late 20s he he released his metabolism slowed down and then he put on a lot of weight so it could have been the weight could have been that it could have also been the shock from six months earlier when he was in this big hotel fire um, and, you know, some people in their party were killed, including his manager's wife, and they barely escaped with their lives. You know. The funeral was held there at the house in Middleborough? Yeah, well, they kind of had two funerals, one that was held in the house at Middle, a sort of a wake there, and then they took him by train to Bridgeport. They had another funeral in the church downtown there, and then they took him to the cemetery there from the church. And it was, I mean, it was a huge funeral. Um, 10,000 people supposedly at the Bridgeport one. Yeah. Mm. And out at the cemetery, his grave w would be topped by the statue that he had posed for. Indeed. I mean, you know, he was really preparing that for his own death. I mean, that was 30 years earlier, almost that he, he, uh, made that statue so um you know he wanted to control that aspect of his uh of his life his you know how he would be remembered so i've just pulled my car over in the mountain grove association cemetery here in bridgeport connecticut it is a beautiful sunny day in late September, a bright blue sky. I seem to have the whole place to myself. And I've pulled over my car about 20, 20 steps away from a monument that says Stratton. Let's go take a look. I'm going to walk up to it. It's uh, at the base of this marble monument. It, it lists the names of Sherwood Stratton, died in 1855 at 44. Cynthia Stratton, his wife, died in 1884. And Charles S. Stratton died July 15, 1883, 45 years, 6 months, and 11 days. Now, on top of this is a tall marble shaft that is topped by a statue of Charles. He's in evening dress, uh, tails, his left arm in front of him, his, his right arm to his back. He's looking straight forward. But what's especially notable here is that Charles Stratton, Tom Thumb, is looking straight forward. He's looking 
across that winding road where I parked, seemingly at perhaps the, the largest marker in this part of the cemetery. I'm going to walk over as you get closer. You can see the name Barnum. And climbing up to this monument, you read Phineas T. Barnum died April 7th, 1891 at 80 years. Charity, his wife, died November 19th, 1873 at 65 years and it lists their children. But where was Lavinia? She's not listed on Charles's monument. It wasn't until later that Eric told me that she had asked for only a simple stone placed in the grass in front of the monument that simply read, wife. Here's Kathy. Lavinia was young when Charles passes away. He's 45. So um, she had a long, healthy life into the 20th century. Um, she married another little person who donned the name Count Maggery. He was not a count. But the two of them also toured. So she continued her professional entertainment lifestyle long into uh, into her later years. When she did pass away, um, she was originally from Middleborough, Massachusetts, but she was, she is buried here in Bridgeport at Mountain Grove Cemetery with Charles. They never had children. People also ask if they had mm -hmm. children. They, there were no children. And interesting that she didn't get buried next to her second husband, the Count. No, yeah. I... I I really believe uh, when when you start really reading it and and actually and even intertwining the relationship that they both had with Barnum and Barnum's family, that there was a a true friendship and family love that they had. They knew each other their entire lives, and it, Lavinia writes about that, you know, and his generosity to the family. So, it's it's a story that probably needs to be told a little more when you want to look at the trials and tribulations of great friendships, theirs is um, a friendship that should be looked at and examined. So that's our story. That's the real Tom Thumb. That's the story of Charles Stratton. To sort of wrap it up, I asked Eric about popular misconceptions about Tom that exist today. I feel like some people are confused about whether or not... Well, first of all, some somebody I talked to didn't even really believe that he had ever existed, <laughs> that he wasn't some sort of invention of Barnum's, or that he hadn't actually been like a child or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll admit it. When You know, 20 years ago, if you had asked me about it, I would have probably been like, ah, that's one of Barnum's humbugs. Mm -hmm. But then you look into it and you find out that all these people talk about him in their diaries and in their letters and you're like you know charles dickens and you know ralph waldo emerson and all these people were like oh yeah i went to see you know tom thought was pretty good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like what <laughs> guys queen victoria you know he's they're friends with queen victoria you know they're they're going and just hanging out with them it's not like a, a performance or anything and so it's a remarkable story, and I think that it's been one of those stories that has been left out of of American history and history itself because um, of prejudice from both sides, from the side of, you know, the sort of prejudice that 
Lavinia really experienced later in life and the prejudice against little people in general, but also the, the sort of well-meaning prejudice of pity and the idea that this was somebody who was exploited by Barnum and, and that we shouldn't therefore look at, but that's just not the actual story. <laughs> there were plenty of people who, who were exploited in the 19th century and plenty of people who died in abject poverty and because of it. And we can focus on them. But in the case of Tom Thumb, it's, it's a different story. It's a, it's a positive story. It's a remarkable story. And I think those stories need to be told too. A huge thanks to my guest today. Eric Lehman is an associate professor of English at the University of Bridgeport and the author of 18 books, including Becoming Tom Thumb, published in 2013 by Wesleyan University Press. Robert Wilson has been the editor of the American Scholar magazine since 2004. Before that, he edited Preservation Magazine and was the book editor and a columnist for USA Today. His previous books include The Explorer King, about the 19th century scientist, explorer, and writer Clarence King, and Matthew Brady, Portraits of a Nation. His most recent book, Barnum, An American Life, from 2019, has just been published in paperback. Kathy Marr is the executive director of the Barnum Museum and is celebrating her 22nd year with the museum. Located an hour out of New York City, P.T. Barnum's last museum continues to stand on Main Street in the heart of downtown Bridgeport, Connecticut, his adopted home. Although the Barnum Museum is currently closed due to COVID-19 regulations, the museum remains active with social media, virtual programming, and a major historic restoration and re-envisioning. Visit barnum-museum.org for more information. And Dr. Michael Mark Chemers is a professor of dramatic literature and director of graduate studies in the Department of Theater Arts at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's the author of Staging Stigma, a critical examination of the American Freak Show, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2008, in which he looks into the career and reception of Charles Stratton. Thanks to these four experts, I could not have told the story without them. And thanks as well to our patrons who support our show on patreon.com slash boweryboys. Greg and I would not be able to produce this show without your small monthly contributions. You make it possible for us to do the Bowery Boys full time. And to thank you, we release patron-only extras, including the Bowery Boys Movie Club, with a new episode coming out really soon, and the Bowery Boys Takeout. To support the show and join the fun, head to patreon.com slash boweryboys. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash boweryboys. Thank you so much for joining me on this tribute to the life, love, and surprising legacy of Charles Stratton. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.